Chapter Eight of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Storm and Stress, Part One. Apart from events of a political character, the most memorable occurrence that took place during the years of Mr. Cleveland's second term was the Columbian Exposition in Chicago, which was opened by the President on May first, eighteen ninety three, and was closed to the public on October thirty first from several points of view this magnificent revelation of american capacity and versatility deserves to be considered in any record which has to do with the intellectual and aesthetic development of the united states its inception no less than its successful elaboration must remain one of the enduring civic glories of the city of chicago and because of it chicago became known all over the civilized world as the most vitally american if not the greatest city of the western hemisphere the plan for a world's fair to commemorate the quadricentenary of the first landing of columbus began to take definite form in eighteen eighty nine that the site of the exposition should be in or near the city of new york was at first regarded as a matter of course a great many persons in new york wished it though new york collectively did not wish it very much there is never anything which new york collectively wishes very much yet with a sort of uninterested generosity its wealthy citizens subscribed the sum of five million dollars to defray the cost of the affair and measures were taken to assure the opening of a columbian exposition in october eighteen ninety two the anniversary month of america's discovery but when congress was asked to approve this plan and thus to give the celebration a national character it appeared that other cities than new york had claims which they were anxious to submit st louis contended for the honor though half-heartedly many thought that washington as the nation's capital deserved the most consideration but the people of chicago fairly hurled themselves into the contest they longed intensely for the opportunity to accomplish something sufficiently stupendous to satisfy their own ambition their own love of bigness their civic pride and most of all their vivid and spectacular but very genuine patriotism they harped upon their city's nearness to the centre of population they claimed the exposition not merely on behalf of their own state but of the entire west they pledged themselves to do anything and everything that might be necessary to make it triumphantly successful they laughed with a large amused contempt at new york's pitiful five millions their own estimates at the very least were twice that sum and before long they spoke of fifteen millions as barely adequate to realize their magnificent ideal in the end they and their supporters fairly carried congress by storm and the exposition was given to chicago ere long it was declared and as the event showed truly that not less than twenty million dollars would have to be expended note one page three fifty one the very hugeness of the sum the colossal daring of the conception which seemed to the conservative east almost a frenzy served only to exhilarate the people of chicago and nerve them to surpass all that they had hitherto imagined in new york there was a certain feeling of relief because the exposition had gone elsewhere the enthusiasm of chicago seemed to the manhattanese a bit of patavinity an amusing exhibition of provincialism chicago's promises were rated as mere wind of course some kind of a huge rare show would be given on the borders of lake michigan but its bigness would be equalled only by its crudity 
how superbly and with what overwhelming completeness the metropolis of the west transformed this mocking criticism into wondering admiration the whole world came to know when on the lakeside a rough unkempt and tangled stretch of plain and swamp became transmuted into a shimmering dream of loveliness under the magic touch of landscape gardener and architect and artist no felicity of language can bring before the eye that never saw them those harmonies which consummate art brooding lovingly over nature evolved into that maze of beauty not one of the twelve million human beings note two page three fifty two who set foot within the court of honour the crowning glory of the whole could fail to be thrilled with a new and poignant sense of what both art and nature truly mean the stately colonnades the graceful arches the clustered sculptures the gleaming domes the endless labyrinth of snowy columns all diversified by greenery and interlaced by long lagoons of quiet water here were blended form and colour in a symmetrical and radiant purity such as modern eyes at least had never looked upon before it was the sheer beauty of its wonderful ensemble rather than the wealth of its exhibits that made this exposition so remarkably significant in the history of such undertakings and especially in its effect upon american civilization so far as the display within its buildings was concerned this had been equalled several years before in paris as it was afterwards surpassed in both paris and st louis upon that side indeed the american people stood far less in need of education than was commonly supposed the importance of the columbian exposition lay in the fact that it revealed to millions of americans whose lives were necessarily colourless and narrow the splendid possibilities of art and the compelling power of the beautiful these possibilities and this power could never have been forced upon their understanding in any other way than by a demonstration so impressive as to stultify denial the far-reaching influence of the demonstration was not one that could be measured by any formal test but a study of american conditions will certainly reveal an accelerated appreciation of the graces of life and a quickening of the aesthetic sense throughout the whole decade which followed the creation of what mr h c bunner most felicitously designated as the white city the year eighteen ninety four is one to be long remembered in american history in it those elements of dynamic discontent which had long been gathering strength half unperceived now loomed upon the political horizon with the black and sullen menace of a swelling thundercloud within whose womb are pent the forces of destruction for years by bargain and by compromise the day of reckoning had been postponed but now both compromise and bargain were impossible and the nation had to face however fearfully the issues which would no longer down the events of eighteen ninety four must of necessity be narrated in succession yet the reader should remember that they took place simultaneously and that each of them had a very definite relation to the others it had been expected by the president and his immediate supporters that the repeal of the sherman act would at once revive prosperity by restoring confidence to the business world such however proved not to be the case the premium on currency had to be sure disappeared as early as september sixth and the list of failures and suspensions was gradually curtailed but there was no general revival of commercial activity if the country had previously shown the symptoms of financial fever it now exhibited a condition of extreme debility the income of the government was far from satisfactory and the secretary of the treasury in his estimates for the coming year anticipated a deficit of twenty eight million dollars as against a surplus of some two million dollars for the fiscal year just ended 
this unfavorable condition of affairs was ascribed by the democrats to the incubus of the mckinley tariff legislation while the republicans continued to assert that the business of the country was at a standstill because of a general distrust of democratic rule and a feeling of uncertainty as to what action the party now in power might take with reference to the tariff it seemed indeed an unpropitious time for entering upon a revision of the revenue system many democrats would have been glad to wait yet in the face of their explicit party pledges delay would have convicted them of insincerity they had carried the election chiefly on the tariff issue their platform had said of the mckinley law we promise its repeal as one of the beneficent results that will follow the action of the people in entrusting power to the democratic party finally some new tariff measure was necessary in order to secure additional revenue for the treasury the schedules of the mckinley act had in part been framed for the purpose of reducing the revenue and preventing the accumulation of another huge surplus this they had accomplished only too successfully and therefore a revision was imperative as a matter of finance in the face of all this it was impossible to take any backward steps or to hesitate and seek refuge in delay furthermore the president as always was earnestly in favor of an aggressive policy his party had been divided by the silver controversy but on the tariff question he felt sure of its support hence when the regular session of congress began on december fourth the president's message spoke with confidence and vigor of new tariff legislation as both an opportunity and a duty after a hard struggle tariff reform is directly before us after full discussion our countrymen have spoken in favor of this reform and they have confided the work of its accomplishment to the hands of those who are solemnly pledged to it nothing should intervene to distract our attention or disturb our effort until this reform is accomplished by wise and careful legislation the president outlined the sort of tariff measure that seemed to him desirable it should give to american manufacturers free raw materials thus enabling them to produce as cheaply as the foreigner and hence to enlarge the market for american-made goods in general the tariff charges should be reduced upon the necessaries of life finally the president announced that a measure such as he had in mind had been already framed and would be promptly submitted to the congress this measure was not to be unduly radical not providing as yet for a tariff for revenue only the country could not in a moment cast aside every vestige of the protective system we cannot close our eyes to the fact that conditions have grown up among us which injustice and fairness call for discriminating care in the distribution of duties and taxation on december nineteenth mr wilson the chairman of the committee on ways and means reported to the house the bill to which the president had made allusion in his message it was officially styled an act to reduce taxation to provide revenue for the government and for other purposes but popularly it was known as the wilson bill the republicans at once denounced it as free trade legislation yet an analysis of its provisions as originally reported showed plainly enough that while it was distinctly a step in the direction of freer trade it was on the whole a very conservative measure in the first place it removed entirely the duties on wool on coal on iron ore on lumber and on sugar both raw and refined it made rather moderate reductions in the duties on woolen goods cottons linens silks pig-iron steel billets steel rails tin plate china glassware and earthenware a number of minor and miscellaneous articles received new schedules 
the most noticeable feature of the bill was its treatment of raw materials as just described here lay the point of departure from republican tariff legislation which in taxing raw materials had made american protectionism a thing unlike the protectionism of other leading nations the wilson bill in providing for the free entry of wool coal iron ore lumber and sugar adopted a principle recognized by scientific economists while it adhered closely to the recommendations of president cleveland's various messages and to the promise made in the democratic platform of eighteen ninety two the remission of the duty on wool was the boldest assertion of the new policy for the duty on wool was the one provision of the mckinley tariff that had been of practical advantage to many american farmers its repeal was bitterly opposed by the wool growers of ohio and other states whom senator sherman estimated at a million souls and the value of their annual product at one hundred twenty five million dollars note three page three fifty seven free iron ore was opposed by the interest that had secured control of the western ore beds but it was of distinct advantage to the eastern manufacturers free coal affected very few sections of the country in new england and on the pacific coast consumers might get their supply of coal from the adjacent mines in canada rather than from the more distant coal fields of pennsylvania and west virginia but the country at large must still use american and not imported coal the same thing was true with regard to lumber the question of the tariff on sugar however was somewhat more complex during the years preceding eighteen ninety four the refining of sugar in the united states had gradually become monopolized by the american sugar refining company oftener spoken of as the sugar trust of which mr h o havemeyer was the head this corporation was one of the most powerful of all those to which public attention had been directed and it was one of the most unpopular the interests of this corporation would be served by admitting raw sugar free thus giving the trust the benefit of cheap material and by a tax upon refined sugar which came from other countries this was precisely what the mckinley act had done enormously increasing the profits of the trust the wilson bill as reported to the house provided for the admission of raw sugar free in accordance with the general theory as to raw materials but it also admitted refined sugar free thereby depriving the sugar trust of any special advantage and leaving it to stand upon its own legs so much for the distinctive features of the new tariff measure in its original form the rest of its schedules were lower than those of the mckinley act but in the main quite as high if not higher than those of the tariff act of eighteen eighty three passed by a republican congress in fact taken as a whole the wilson bill so far from being in essence a free trade measure was one that would have been regarded in the years before the civil war as a piece of rigorous protective legislation it embodied however as has been explained the general principle of free raw materials while still it dealt considerately with the many interests which had grown up under the shelter of the thirty-two tariff acts which the republicans had passed between eighteen sixty and eighteen ninety the wilson bill was very well received by the democrats in the house and by the party as a whole little change was made in the original draft during the five weeks when it was under consideration by the representatives but many democrats and some republicans from the south and west eagerly advocated the insertion in the bill of a clause providing for a tax on incomes this would yield it was said a substantial revenue and wipe out the anticipated deficit and most of all it would make the possessors of large fortunes contribute to the government a sum proportionate to their wealth 
there was a strong and very widespread feeling that many of the richest persons in the country had so successfully dodged their taxes as to have secured a practical exemption from any taxation whatsoever secretary carlyle had suggested laying a tax upon certain classes of corporations but the house adopted instead a tax of two per cent upon all incomes of more than four thousand dollars the tax to remain in force until january first nineteen hundred this clause was adopted on january twenty fourth by a vote of two hundred four to one hundred forty and the bill as a whole received the approval of the house on february first by a vote of one hundred eighty two to one hundred six sixty one members not voting when the result was announced by the speaker it was received with a burst of democratic cheering and mr wilson was showered with congratulations by his followers and friends but after the bill reached the senate affairs took a decidedly different turn the democratic majority in the upper house was a very small one and its close cohesion had already been destroyed while there were many reasons why a tariff measure such as the wilson bill should encounter serious opposition there these reasons may be indicated briefly as springing first from personal opposition to president cleveland and second from the fact that the senate unlike the house was controlled by powerful financial interests which were ably represented on the floor the personal animosity toward the president which did not at once find open expression was in part an inheritance from his first administration note four page three fifty nine in part a result of the masterful way in which he had forced the repeal of the sherman act and to a large degree it represented the traditional antagonism which most senators entertain toward every president who has not had congressional experience sufficient to make him understand and properly respect the usages the prerogatives and the prejudices of the senatorial body in various ways senators of the united states feel themselves to be above the president they are elected not by a direct vote of the people but by the legislatures of the several states and therefore they are not directly influenced by the popular will their term of office is longer than the presidential term of office and a senator who is either a man of real distinction or a master of political management is certain to be elected for term after term so that in very many instances a seat in the senate is held by what is practically a life tenure finally the ramifications of so-called senatorial courtesy traverse party lines and create among the members of the senate an esprit de corps which is often stronger than the dictates of party loyalty as to the interests other than political interests which at times controls the action of individual senators these may be sufficiently divined from what has been set forth in the preceding chapter note five page three sixty most senators are wealthy men and their private and personal affiliations are not unnaturally with those who represent the power of wealth in public life it was something more than ominous that the wilson tariff bill after passing the house by a majority of seventy-six and after having been referred by the senate to its finance committee should have been held back by that committee for almost two months when reported march twentieth it had been so clipped and trimmed as to exhibit a very curious metamorphosis yet in the open senate the measure fared still worse as might have been expected the republicans fell upon it tooth and nail but acting in entire harmony with them were certain democratic senators who seemed to have forgotten altogether the solemn pledges which their national convention of eighteen ninety two had given to the country foremost among these were the blandly inscrutable senator gorman of maryland and the newly elected senator bryce of ohio 
the two appeared upon the democratic side of the senate as the unavowed yet most efficient agents of the protected interests and their object was plainly to modify and mutilate the wilson bill in such a way as to deprive it of any real significance and meaning as its schedules were discussed messrs bryce and gorman played upon the local interests of little knots of democratic senators so that amendment after amendment was made each one restoring a part of the remitted duties in all the senate made six hundred thirty-four changes in the house measure destroying entirely its original character coal iron ore lumber and sugar were removed from the list altogether leaving wool and copper the only raw materials to be let in untaxed the action of the senate upon the sugar schedule led to a most deplorable scandal the house had put all sugar both refined and raw upon the free list thereby giving governmental aid neither to the sugar trust nor to the domestic producer the two senators from louisiana however having in mind their sugar-growing constituency insisted that raw sugar must be taxed without their votes the bill could probably not be carried at all so close was the division furthermore other senators believed that such a duty was necessary as a revenue measure note six page three sixty one since the funds in the treasury were low and the receipts from the income tax would not be available for many months hence the senate imposed a duty upon raw sugar of forty per cent ad valorem equivalent to about one cent a pound but a duty on raw sugar without a countervailing duty on refined sugar would have been a serious blow to the sugar trust all the powerful influences at the command of this corporation were immediately brought to bear upon the senate here was a direct issue between one of the most notorious of trusts on the one side and the purpose of crippling trusts avowed by the democracy on the other the democratic platform had spoken up trusts and combinations as a natural consequence of the prohibitive taxes which prevent free competition would democratic senators in the face of this declaration impose a prohibitive tax at the bidding of a trust whose monopoly controlled one of the necessities of life the debate upon the subject soon waxed hot while it was in progress ugly rumours began to fly abroad the certificates of the sugar trust fluctuated in value every day as the senate seemed first favourable and then unfavourable to its interests the story was at first whispered and then published all over the country that certain senators were buying and selling sugar certificates speculating that is in sugar on the basis of their own official action so great an outcry went up and such sweeping charges were made that an investigation was instituted by the senate itself an investigation only half-heartedly pursued probably no senator really wished to smirch the reputation of a fellow-senator yet if only to pacify the public something had to be done at once senators were questioned by the special investigating committee but with slight results save in one striking instance mr key of pennsylvania most characteristically admitted that he had speculated in sugar and that his speculations had been guided by his official knowledge of the senate's action with even greater effrontery he justified what he had done adding as an afterthought that his financial interest in the affair had not in the least degree influenced his course on the floor of the senate other senators were less impudent if not less culpable definite knowledge could not be had it must come if at all from new york brokerage firms through which the speculative senators had sent their orders by telegraph there was some difficulty about getting this evidence and in the end nothing was accomplished save to leave a taint upon the names of several senators and to disgust the country with the whole tariff controversy 
one very instructive feature of this investigation was found in the testimony given to the committee by mr henry o havemeyer the president of the sugar trust mr havemeyer was asked about the relations of his trust to the great political parties and their state campaign funds did it contribute to the funds of both parties yes said mr havemeyer with cheerful frankness we always do that in the state of new york where the democratic majority is between forty thousand and fifty thousand we throw it the trust's contribution their way in the state of massachusetts where the republican party is dominant they probably have the call wherever there is a dominant party wherever the majority is very large that is the party that gets the contribution because that is the party which controls the local matters the importance of this admission was obvious when one remembers that what mr havemeyer vaguely alluded to as local matters meant the election of senators and representatives to congress and of judges to the state judiciary mr havemeyer further remarked that the practice of dividing money between the two political parties was the practice of every corporation and firm and trust and whatever you may call it this illumining discourse of mr havemeyer's was on the whole the most valuable contribution to knowledge made by the senate committee when it finally reported note seven page three sixty four but meanwhile the trust had its way refined sugar was taxed one-eighth of a cent a pound with an additional duty of one-tenth of a cent on refined sugar imported from countries giving an export bounty this tax minutely insignificant though it may appear was ample to continue and confirm the sugar trust in its supremacy the fractional duty of one-eighth of a cent a pound meant to the treasury of the trust not less than twenty million dollars of profit every year note eight page three sixty four after months of wearisome delay with frequent scenes of disorder and indecorum the senate finally on july third allowed the mutilated tariff bill to pass by a scant majority of five votes thirty nine to thirty four with twelve senators not voting during these proceedings president cleveland had watched the course of the senate with a very natural indignation in his message of the preceding december he had said success can only be obtained by means of unselfish counsel on the part of friends of tariff reform and as a result of their willingness to subordinate personal desires and ambitions to the general good the local interests affected by the proposed reform are so numerous and so varied that if all are insisted upon the legislation embodying the reform must inevitably fail as the event showed there had been no unselfish counsel in the senate personal desires and ambitions had not been subordinated local interests had been most greedily insisted upon it was now evident that the legislation would inevitably fail so far as it professed to embody a reform unless the senate could be induced to rescind some of its amendments the bill went back to the house for its concurrence mr wilson rising in his place on july seventh urged that as altered and amended it not be passed he spoke with force and eloquence and then took the unusual step of reading to the house a personal letter addressed to him by the president on july second anticipating the action of the senate it was an extraordinary letter and the fact of its being read was still more extraordinary for thus the executive was made to criticize the action of one house of congress in a letter practically written to be read before the other house from a party point of view a democratic president was arraigning democratic senators before both democratic and republican representatives the most significant sentences of the letter were the following 
my public life has been so closely related to the subject i have so longed for its accomplishment and i have so often promised its realization to my fellow-countrymen that i hope no excuse is necessary for my earnest appeal to you that in this crisis you strenuously insist upon party honesty and good faith and a sturdy adherence to democratic principles it is quite apparent that this question of free raw materials does not admit of adjustment on any middle ground since their subjection to any rate of tariff great or small is alike a violation of democratic principles and democratic good faith there is no excuse for mistaking or misapprehending the feeling and temper of the rank and file of the democracy they are downcast under the assertion that their party fails in ability to manage the government and they are apprehensive that efforts to bring about tariff reform may fail but they are much more downcast and apprehensive in their fear that democratic principles may be surrendered every true democrat knows that this bill in its present form is not the consummation for which we have long looked our abandonment of the cause or the principles upon which it rests means party perfidy and party dishonour note nine page three sixty six that president cleveland should have permitted such a letter to be read at such a time has seemed to many the clearest possible evidence of his incompetence as a party leader it was most certainly a gauge of defiance to the senate a body already inimical to him it violated to some extent the proprieties of executive courtesy toward a branch of the national legislature it was certain to give the bitterest offence to senators of his own party what then could the president hope to gain by what was on his face a serious indiscretion the answer to this question is probably to be found in the remark of an english student of mr cleveland's political career as this observer wrote in eighteen ninety six mr cleveland was possessed of an enduring faith in the common sense of the nation he had always acted on the rule that the people were capable of understanding the truth if it was clearly and frankly put before them note ten page three sixty six this does beyond all doubt sufficiently explain why as president mr cleveland so often sent to congress long messages advocating measures which he knew very well would not be considered for a moment by that body his arguments were in reality addressed not to the senators and representatives but to the entire nation and so his letter to mr wilson by the very unusual circumstances under which it received publicity was not by any means a peevish plaint uttered in a moment of irritation but rather a well-considered disclaimer of responsibility for the action of the democratic senators it was an appeal from the politicians to the people but the effect of it in the senate was to seal irrevocably the fate of the wilson bill as a measure of true reform although the president had named no names in his accusation of party perfidy and dishonour the shaft had gone unerringly to its proper mark senator gorman stung by those pungent words brought the subject before the senate with a show of virtuous indignation senator hill defended the president in a long speech july twentieth but mr gorman having prepared himself for battle went into the whole question on its personal side july twenty third after some satirical remarks directed against mr wilson for having made public what he senator gorman assumed to be a private letter he went on to say that mr cleveland's charges were wholly disingenuous he asserted that the president had been consulted with regard to the senate amendments and had given them his approval in corroboration of this statement mr gorman called upon two other democratic senators messrs vest and jones to bear him out on what he had just said in short he raised a question of veracity between the president and himself 
whatever view the senate took of this personal controversy its opposition to mr cleveland's wishes now became solidified and irrevocable the house refused to concur in the senate's amendments and the bill was sent to a conference committee of both houses in conference the senate's representatives refused to yield a single point the house could take the bill precisely as it left the senate or the bill could fail leaving the mckinley tariff still in force in the end the house was forced to accept the amendments in their entirety and to pass the bill which mr cleveland had stigmatized as involving perfidy and dishonor note eleven page three sixty eight the predicament of the president was a cruel one he could not put his signature to such a measure he could not veto it and make the professions of his party utterly ridiculous and so he let it become a law without his signature august twenty eighth giving his reasons for so doing in a letter to mr catchings of mississippi the wilson act was he said in some of its provisions better than the existing tariff law it effected an average reduction of duties which left them less by eleven per cent than those of the mckinley tariff it provided for the admission of free wool the tax on incomes would relieve the treasury but then he went on to speak of the sinister influences which had marred the measure as a whole the war against those influences had only just begun tariff reform will not be settled until it is honestly and fairly settled in the interest and to the benefit of a patient and long-suffering people i take my place with the rank and file of the democratic party who refuse to accept the results embodied in this bill as the close of the war who are not blinded to the fact that the livery of democratic tariff reform has been stolen and worn in the service of republican protection and who have marked the places where the deadly blight of treason has blasted the counsels of the brave in their hour of might the trusts and combinations the communism of pelf whose machinations have prevented us from reaching the success we deserved should not be forgotten nor forgiven humiliating as this lamentable fiasco was to the section of his party which had been steadily loyal to the president there still remained a no less disappointing sequel many who felt chagrin over the defeat of genuine tariff reform had comforted themselves with the remembrance that at least the section of the wilson bill establishing an income tax had been saved this section had indeed proved to be the most popular of any in the bill as the majorities given it in both houses very clearly showed men recalled the dictum of secretary fessenden who in eighteen sixty four declared that the ability to pay increases in much more than arithmetical proportion as the amount of income exceeds the limits of reasonable necessity to the western and southern democrats and also to the populists an income tax seemed perhaps a thing of greater immediate importance than a revision of the tariff the more so as it was bitterly opposed by eastern capitalists in the senate mr hill of new york had attacked it with an energy and force most unusual in him this income tax said mr hill is unconstitutional because it is a direct tax and a direct tax not based upon the population can be levied only by the several states and not by the federal government it is odious because it is a war tax and has never been imposed in time of peace note twelve page three sixty nine it exempts incomes of four thousand dollars and less and therefore represents class legislation distinguishing between the rich and the poor it is a purely sectional measure because this tax will bear more severely upon the east than upon the west note thirteen page three seventy finally its administration is necessarily offensive for it establishes that sort of inquisition into the individual citizen's private affairs which amounts practically to espionage 
End of chapter 8, part 1